0: Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 730 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know, or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. So join me in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, I give you thanks and praise for this day, the gift of this new liturgical year, this Advent season, to be reminded of all you've done for us in becoming man, and giving us an opportunity to turn away from sin, to repent, to prepare the way for you to come, not only at Christmas, but each and every day into our lives. So we pray tonight, Lord, that this would be One of those ways we can prepare, one of the ways we can set aside the busyness and the noise of our everyday life and enter into contemplation, reflection, silence, discussion, and uh, just deep encounter with you in your word. So we pray, God, that you would bless our reading of your word. You knew each one of us would be here tonight, and so you have a message in store for each one of us. We pray, Lord, that our ears, hearts, and, and minds would be open to receive whatever that is, and that We would be able to set aside any worries, distractions, doubts, anything that might be drawing us away from this time so that we can be fully present to how your Spirit is moving and speaking to us. Bless us each in the ways that we most need it when we lay this next hour and our lives at your feet. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome. We are in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And this is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, the second Sunday of Advent. So we're going to read this twice through, first time through, just get a picture for what is being said. Um, what has happened before this, we're kind of starting in the gospel of Matthew, we've had the entire birth narrative of Matthew before this. So chapters one and two of Matthew are all about Jesus' genealogy, and then the birth narrative, um, how he uh, comes into the world and uh, the Magi visiting him and all the kind of prophecies that were fulfilled. And this is the very beginning of the next section in Matthew of the proclamation of the kingdom, starting with John the Baptist. So we're going to start with that. Uh, Picture that in the middle of the desert, somewhere near the Dead Sea, uh, some raving, what you might call lunatic uh, style of a person, John the Baptist, clothed in camel's hair, eating wild locusts and honey, screaming, repent at passersby, Um, kind of a fringe type of person, and yet people are flocking to him to be baptized. And so uh, as we read through this first time, just try and get that scene in your mind, a very arid landscape, Uh, just smell, feel the salt in the air, uh, the heat on your skin, Uh, just putting yourself in this scene and see what you notice. Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist appeared, preaching in the desert of Judea, And saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was of him that the prophet Isaiah had spoken when he said, A voice of one crying out in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. At that time, Jerusalem, all Judea, and the whole region around the Jordan were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they acknowledged their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce good fruit as evidence of your repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God can raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Even now, the axe lies at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit, good fruit, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I am baptizing you with water for repentance. But the one who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not worthy to carry his sandals he will baptize you with the holy spirit and fire his winnowing fan is in his hand he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with
1: unquenchable
0: fire the gospel of the lord praise to you lord jesus christ i know <laughs> season of Advent, you think it's going to be all the baby and the star. and have got fire and brimstone this week. So, second time through. Uh, this time, listen more closely. See if there's a particular word or phrase that stands out to you personally. It does not have to connect to the passage. It's more important that it connects to you for whatever reason. Take that as the Lord speaking to you. Begin to reflect on why. Why is this standing out to me? What is God trying to say directly to you? Matthew 3, second time through. In those days... John the Baptist appeared, preaching in the desert of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was of him that the prophet Isaiah had spoken when he said, A voice of one crying out in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, and had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey, At that time, Jerusalem, all Judea, and the whole region around the Jordan were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they acknowledged their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce good fruit as evidence of your repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father." For I tell you, God can raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Even now the axe lies at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I am baptizing you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ.
1: So take a few moments,
0: reflect back on the things that stood out in the passage as a whole. And when you feel so inclined, feel free to share with those at your table what stood out to you and why. If you're listening or watching this later, please share with us your thoughts. But those of us here, take about five or ten minutes, share any reflections, questions you have, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group. What are some of the things that are standing out to you, questions that you have about this passage?
1: Yes, sir. You always, you always give us this little insights on translating words. Sure. So what was... Th- What's the word for repentance in Greek, for example? And it doesn't does mean more than just confessing your sins. Does it mean like turning turn your
0: life around? Yes, yeah. So the word for repent in Greek is metanoia, which is a word you may have heard before. Uh, if you break the word down, meta means above or beyond. And then noia comes from noos, which means knowledge. So it's about going beyond knowledge or above knowledge. In Hebrew, it's teshuva, which means um, it actually means to return. Uh, so you are kind of coming back to something that you have strayed away from, is kind of the the term in Hebrew. So it, when we hear the word repent in Scripture, it's always kind of talking about, you know, a 180-degree turn in another direction. And it's not just, you know, a head conversion. It's something where you're totally convicted of this heart-based desire to go home or to return back uh, to where you belong. So that's kind of the full... Um, etymology of the word when it's used in Scripture. Um, Because I think a lot of times when we we repent, just practically, you imagine like you're running this way towards sin, and then you decide, okay, I don't want to do that anymore, and you just kind of turn this way. I just turned away from sin. But we don't often or always make the full 180-degree turn to then run in the other direction. Sometimes we just kind of turn away, and then we just kind of stay there. And we're very easily swayed to go still in either direction. And because of our concupiscence, our tendency to sin, that's the theological term for it, we are very easily inclined to turn back the uh, the lesser amount we turn away. It's easier to get sucked back into that cycle of sin. So when we talk about repentance, the words that are used in Scripture, they're always about this 180-degree turn, total life change, transformation uh, type of thing. Even the word meta in, in, uh, in Greek uh, the root word for metanoia always implies some type of change or uh, transformation. You think of, like metamorphic rock comes from that same uh, root word. So yeah.
1: Okay. That's the only question. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Shoot. <laughs> I don't want to be a bog. You no, know, you're but, good. Um, the the line about let's see. God can raise children for Abraham from these stones. Mm Is he talking about Gentile conversion here?
0: So, um, okay. (laughs) So this has to do with where John the Baptist is. Okay, So John the Baptist is in an area right uh, beyond the Jordan, right near the Jordan River, because he's baptizing in the Jordan River, um, near the Dead Sea. And this place is totally arid. There's no life. There's no plant life. If you've been there, it's very desolate um, that's why it's just very like crazy and obscure and random that this guy, who is some kind of desert hermit dressed in camel hair, is yelling at people to repent, and people are coming. It's very bizarre. Like if this were to happen today, everyone would be like, "Well, just like don't go to the desert. Why would you go there in the first place? Like it's hot and gross. You know, like why would we go there? You know, it, it would it would take something very magnetic to attract you to that place. Um, so that's one thing. But in that geographic location. Is where in Joshua chapter 4 if you remember the whole story of Moses and the Exodus very common story we all know it. Moses leads the people through the desert for 40 years okay Joshua takes over for Moses and Moses dies before he's able to enter the promised land because of uh, some disobedience to God that happened in the desert so Joshua takes over and there's a lesser-known story of how Joshua has all of the priests or the Levites maybe both of them take the Ark of the Covenant and go into the Jordan River, and the Jordan River parts, just like the Red Sea does, kind of showing that Joshua still has this relationship with God, this kinship with God, that's allowing these powerful things to happen, just like happened through Moses, okay? And while it's parted, he commands in Joshua chapter 4, a designated person from each tribe to take a stone from the river and make a monument of 12 stones to remember that God has been with them and been faithful to his promise to lead them into the promised land. Okay, So when he's saying these stones, he's talking about that monument, and even if it didn't still physically exist, everyone knew that's where it was. It's a very clear geographic place. There's only one place where the you know the Jordan River is skinny enough to cross. It's in that same geographic area near Jericho, like you knew where it was. So that's what they're referencing. So um, it has a historical reference. It also has to do with the fact that he is uh, scathing the Pharisees and Saddu- Sadducees against their attempt to, or their tendency to say, oh, we're just, we're Jewish, we're chosen people, we're children of Abraham. And so what he's saying is like, look, like the old covenant, the old monument that's here, like God can raise up like children of Abraham, they're a dime a dozen, you know, like, but the kingdom of God that is at hand, that's going to be different. It's going to go beyond what this monument is here for, but it's also going to fulfill the promises that this monument represents." That God is still faithful, still establishing his kingdom, still leading us to the promised land, except that promised land is going to ascend from Jerusalem to heaven. That that is really the real promised land that he is is, uh, preparing us for, he's leading us to. And so this new covenant, this new relationship, this new promise to take us out of the desert of sin out of the wandering of the oppression under Roman uh, occupation, out of the scrupulosity of the Jewish law, all of the things that are causing them to feel disconnected to God or like they're not worthy, they are now being led through that desert of tumultuous kind of faith into a new promised land of the kingdom of heaven. And so it's a representation of a new covenant that's going to be started by Jesus. And you can infer based on the language that it's not just the children of Adam, that there are more children that can be raised even from these stones. Um, but I don't think any uh, biblical scholar would say it's clear enough that he's talking about Gentiles. You could interpret it that way. It wouldn't be invalid, but it's not clear enough to say, yes, definitely, that's what he's saying. Does that make sense? Great. Margot. Um, I've heard this you know, so many times that just time because- I don't know what it means. Prepare the way of the Lord. What makes make straight his path's name. Yeah. Um, so this is a direct quote from a passage, I believe, in Isaiah. Where does it say? It says this is in Isaiah, but I don't have where it is. Maybe it's 40. Yes, Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice proclaims, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wasteland a highway for our God. So this is a quote from um, Isaiah. Um, So what that meant was in the midst of wandering through the desert, like in the Old Testament times, they are making a way for the Lord. They are making a place to worship him. You know, they built the tabernacle. Uh, But also there's the spiritual and the figurative sense that they are making a way through kind of the bramble and overgrowth of our own hearts, kind of forging a path that is unobstructed for God to come to us. You know, when I was reading this in preparation this evening, um, kind of going back through it, that's the line that stood out to me, actually, was make straight his paths. And I was remembering a few weeks ago, I shared with you when I was lost in the woods in Georgia, and I was thinking about like the path that I was on. And most paths are very windy, right? They, they use the natural kind of landscape to find the best, easiest you know, method to get from point A to point B. And I was thinking about what what are the practicalities if I, if I was sitting on that path and deciding, like, you know what, I'm just going to make this path straight, All that I would have to do, I would have to come up against all the giant spiders and spider webs and all the fallen trees, and I would have to remove those obstacles out of the way, line a new path, like literally reforge what had been done before. And I see that as such a good analogy for Advent, because sometimes we can get caught up in going down the same path over and over again in our spiritual life. I do the same things, I have my spiritual checklist, you know, all of that, and they're they're not bad things, but... No one can pray the same way every day their entire life and have it remain fruitful. We're just, we're we're not built that way. We're not built to be that habitual. And you've probably all experienced this. You have a really beautiful season of prayer after retreat or after profound spiritual experience, and then all of a sudden the same things get stale. You know, when I was a commuter commuting to college, I would pray four rosaries a day, two on the way to school and two on the way home. I'd pray all the, mystery, the, the mysteries every single day, five days a week when I was commuting. And I found that very profound and fruitful for like a year and a half, and then I got into the next semester, and I started praying the rosary, and I was like, oh my gosh, I am so bored. Like, I cannot, I'm getting nothing out of this, like whatsoever. It was so fruitful for such a a long time. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't that the rosary was no longer effective, it's that my heart needed something else. That path, even though I had walked it many times, it didn't have that same allure, You know, the first time you walk through a path in the forest, you know, or a path you've never gone down, a hiking trail, you're taking in all the beauty, right? You're taking in everything like, wow, look at this landscape, look at this. But then you go through it, you know, a hundred times and you you stop noticing that stuff. I grew up in Lake Arrowhead in the mountains and I'd seen it every, uh, you know, every day of my life. It wasn't that magnificent to me. And then I went to Europe for the first time. And I saw little Austrian villages and Danish villages and things like that, and the beautiful architecture. And I was like, wow, this is so quaint and amazing. And I went back home and I looked at the buildings in Lake Arrowhead, and they're designed exactly the same. They're designed, they're modeled after these European villages. And I looked out the picturesque lake and the mountains and snow-covered treetops, and I was like, oh my gosh. Like, this is exactly what I just saw and had this profound experience of traveling. And it was right here in my home all along. The same thing is true of our spiritual life, right? Sometimes we don't realize the beauty of the path that we're on, because we've walked it too many times. Sometimes that path has just become stale, and we just need to make a new path. Or sometimes that path has become overgrown because we've stopped walking it altogether. And so I think, to answer your question, it can mean any of those things. It can mean we have to forge a brand new path because that path isn't working for us anymore, or it's taking too long of a route, or it's taking us to a destination we no longer need to get to, we're trying to get somewhere else. Or we haven't even walked down the path and we need to make it straight again by simply, you know, walking through and crumpling down the weeds and making it flat again. You know, so it's it's this difference between I'm going to go out and look for God versus I'm going to clear everything out of my life, everything out of the way, so I can just allow God to come find me, put myself in a position to be found. So instead of going off on this journey and trekking to find God, It's as if God is coming and trying to land in our life on a helicopter, and we just need to clear a pad. We need to get rid of the weeds, get rid of the big rocks and the obstacles in our life to just allow him to land. That's kind of what this passage, I think, can be interpreted for us in our Advent experience. How are we willing and able to make straight a path, make a new path, or recognize that the the spiritual path that I've been on has been very windy and complicated and is a little scrupulous or is a little too, um, you know, making me worry about wrong things or practice devotions that aren't very fruitful for me anymore like sometimes it's it's just needs a simpler a simpler way you know sometimes it's easier instead of taking that winding switchback to just take the straight line between point A and point B but at different times in our life we're not ready to do that yeah i think that was
1: a really good point just in terms of things that you've done repetitiously and mm-hmm. i found that with morning prayer you know okay, this 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 I say these prayers Yep that are meaningful to me, mm-hmm. but the more you do it every single day, your head isn't in it quite as much, yeah. because it come, becomes routine. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a really good
0: point. Yeah, it becomes automatic. Same thing is true in relationships, right? You know, certain things in relationships can become automatic, and then all of a sudden you're having the same conversation over and over again, you know? Um, you know, Thanksgiving just happened, you see the same family, you talk about the same things, you know, it's just there's no change or disruption. And when there is, even though it can be kind of tumultuous like, oh, we're talking about this now? Like, uh-oh, or, you know, or something new finally is happening in this person's life you know, or whatever. Um, you know, it, it, it creates something new. You know? And then you have to navigate how to make that something fruitful. You know? Just because you start forging a new path doesn't mean it's ultimately going to be fruitful immediately. You're going to get the cuts and the bruises of having to move the fallen trees and get the rocks out of the way. And it might be a while before you recognize like, oh, I'm finally a little bit closer to my destination. So Advent is really, I think, that's a, it's a great analogy for both Advent and Lent, which is why we hear these passages in both seasons. Greg? Let's start
1: with this one card. And the whole region around the Jordan was going out to him, or going out to him, and we're being baptized by him that joined the Jordan river as they acknowledge their sins. Mm -hmm. That almost sounds sounds like our Christian view of confession, reconciliation. And I don't quite, maybe if you can give us an analogy of other parts of like the Old Testament of people acknowledging their sins. Mm -hmm. We hear about people committing sin, but actually making the, the actual mental, emotional act of acknowledging their sins. Yeah. In the, I don't
0: know. yeah, the one that, that comes to mind first is King David when he, you know, uh, sleeps with Bathsheba and commits adultery and then has her husband killed in battle. Um, when he's confronted by the prophet Nathan and Nathan gives him an analogy of what he's done using a, kind of a parable of sheep. He gets very infuriated at the character in the story that is him and Nathan exposes him and he repents and he writes the great repentance Psalm, Psalm 51. As kind of a public declaration, and that became part of the liturgical prayer of the temple. You know his prayer. You know, so not only was it a public acknowledgement of his sin, it became an opportunity for everyone to publicly acknowledge and pray for those moments where they've sinned. Um, Historically, in the church and in the temple, uh, confession was public. It was done outside of the the court of the temple because you weren't worthy enough to go in. There were whole seasons of penitence. In fact, in early Catholic churches, the communion rail system that some may remember or still have in traditional systems was actually uh, uh, the traditional holdover from a series of zones in the church. There used to be several kind of rails or uh, barriers, maybe not barriers, but dividers of sorts, that depending on what what level of penitence you were in based on the sins you'd committed, you could only go so far in the church. Church They did this in Catholic churches.
1: I know but you go to an Orthodox church today a there's triptychs or whatever. Yes, yeah.
0: Yeah, so there is some temple-like imagery and tabernacle-like imagery in the way Orthodox churches are constructed. So this was in the nave in the area where the people sat. So some people could, would just stand in the back of the church because of their penance. Some people wouldn't even enter. Some people would come and sit, and some people couldn't approach the communion rail, and then finally when your penance was done. Um, you could approach and receive communion. And penance was not this thing that was like, go say this number of prayers. Penance sometimes lasted for years for certain sins. So that's, and this was in the church, and this dated to before this, or whole seasons of repentance. And people would wear the the, the sackcloth and ashes as a public sign of their acknowledgement of their sins. So interpreting this, this probably means there was some kind of public confession or declaration of sins before the assembly, and that you know sometimes we're intimidated by going to confession sometimes right you know and you're in a private room with someone who is bound by the seal of confession to never even utter a detail to a soul and i mean it's like the safest thing ever it's like you're comparing like rugby and football like in football you stop every 8 seconds and you're fully padded but in rugby everyone just is running at each other with no pads headbutting each other you know it's like that's the difference like your public confession is so intense like so intimidating We, in comparison, have a very kind of cushy, padded version of it, and yet we can still get scared of it. We can still get intimidated by it, even though it's so like safe and sacred and protected. And so that goes to show like what is required of something like repentance. It's not a half hearted act, it's not something that you can do kind of in your own private prayer behind closed doors or without kind of even a public acknowledgement of the fact okay, from now on, this person should be different. Like imagine that kind of positive pressure you've publicly declared your sins. You're saying like, I want to repent. I want to turn away in front of a group of people who are now going to be watching you and determining does this person mean what they say? Are they actually living up to it? And this is at a time, remember, where everybody heard and knew everything about everyone. There weren't a lot of locked doors, you know, private homes where it was completely isolated from everyone in the town or the village. Like people heard through windows, even, you know, into the night, like there wasn't Closing windows and locks and things like that. Only very wealthy homes had locks. Um, And so, like, imagine that. You know, imagine that vulnerability that you have to have to the community. And also this kind of idea of being the body of Christ and recognizing, like, when I sin, it affects not only me but everyone because everything that we do is so much more intimately connected to each other. And so when you make a public confession of sin, when you really repent, it had this very heavy weight to it that had this kind of... not something you can do half-heartedly. It had this uh, serious baggage with it that people were going to be watching for, you know? So um, what I also love about that point of where he is, you know, in the desert of Judea, uh, the desert is, is often the place of testing and the place of God choosing people, you know, out in the desert for 40 years, Jesus being tempted in the desert for 40 days, Um, you know, the place where the scapegoat of the sins on the Day of Atonement was sent out to is this place of like acknowledgement of sins, God choosing, God giving the law. All of those things happened out in the desert. And then where they are specifically, they're at the Dead Sea. It's the lowest physical place on earth. That's where God chose to come. He chose to come not only to the, the, the lowest geographical place, but he chose to come... There, as a symbol for being willing to come to the lowest spiritual place, to go to the darkest place for us, to redeem us, to bring us salvation, to pronounce the kingdom of God is at hand. Yes?
1: We were discussing, uh, who instructed John to baptize that
0: way? Um, So a lot of people think that John was a member of the Jewish sect called the Essenes. Um, so you know the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, the Zealots. We have Simon the Zealot who becomes an apostle. Uh, the fourth other major sect at this time was the Essenes. And the Essenes were like a hermit, uh, hermit type of uh, uh, group that were anticipating the coming of the kingdom of God. They were waiting for, especially the prophet Elijah, to return because he was assumed into heaven in 2 Kings chapter 2. So they, they wore and took on the mantle of Elijah. That's why John the Baptist wears camel hair, eats wild locusts and honey because that's what Elijah did. He wore hair, he wore a leather belt, he, he ate out in the desert. He was a very obscure figure. Just like it says here where uh, John the Baptist appeared preaching in the desert, uh, in 2 Kings um, or 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah the Tishbite just appears. So it's like there was Elijah the Tishbite out in the desert somewhere, like no saying where he came from, you know what he's about. And Matthew does that to kind of show that John the Baptist is the new Elijah. He is kind of the embodiment of, of Elijah coming to pronounce the uh, coming of the Son of Man and the pronouncement of the Kingdom of God. Um, so being part of the Essenes, the Essenes—if you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls—they uh, were found in the area of Qumran, that is believed to be where the Essenes lived. Uh, They were hermits. They did participate in a kind of ritual washing um, as a a way of purifying themselves. Um, But it wasn't the same as baptism. It was something that they did over and over again um, as a means of kind of acknowledgement of their sins and purification. Um, But it kind of, I think, easily graduated into this type of um, ritual washing for those who were already Jewish. Um, As I've said before, the only thing that existed in comparison to this was if a Gentile became Jewish, they would go through some kind of ritual bathing and purification as part of the rite of like converting to Judaism, along with being circumcised if they were male. Uh, But that didn't exist for people who are already Jews, which is the people who are coming to John the Baptist. So this is something that came from the Essene practice of purification that they turned into baptism, which eventually became a sacrament. You know, And we get that because Jesus comes and baptizes and he tells us to go baptize at the end of Matthew. So um, that's kind of who John the Baptist is, where he came from, why he baptizes, who taught him how to do that, and where that all comes from. Yes?
1: Um, Matthew, towards the end of in, uh, 12, it says that Christ uh, widowing, fan Yes. That word right, is throwing the other...
0: Yes, so winnowing fan is an agricultural tool. Um, You think of it maybe in terms of almost like a scythe, and it basically what it does is it disturbs the wheat so that the grain will fall out and will fall down to the ground. So what you would do is you would go cut all of your wheat, you'd bring it into a barn, and you would use a winnowing fan to uh, get all the heavy grains of wheat to drop to the, the bottom, and all the chaff, which is the much lighter stuff that was left, Um, would be left on top, and you would open the doors of the barn or the area and let the wind come in and blow away the chaff. And that's often used in scripture as an analogy for those who are righteous and faithful versus those who are unfaithful. The righteous will be those who are the good grain who fall to the ground and who remain, and those who are unfaithful are those who are kind of have a shallow faith. They're so light that they'll get carried away in the wind. And often uh, the, they might just open one side of the barn, and it would get carried into one end, and then it would be burned. That way, you don't have this massive, you know, trash heap somewhere. Uh, and so that obviously is an analogy for hell. But it was an agricultural tool. Yeah. Other things stand out. Other questions, Craig? Kind
1: of struck with All these people are coming out to Jordan River. And John the Baptist is there, but when he sees the Pharisees, the Sadducees, he makes short shrift of them right away. I mean, he doesn't give them an opening to like, well, maybe they're coming here to repent. Yeah, you guys are vipers. That's it. Yeah, not, you know. I mean, you know. Yeah. It's not Christian, but I mean, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's not well, it yeah. goes
0: back to the the term for repent, right? He knows, based on what the Pharisees and Sadducees have been doing, that they are not making that 180 degree turn. They're not making this public confession. Or if they are, he's quoting them. And they're saying, we have Abraham as our father. You know, we don't know if they're coming to be baptized. They might just be coming to watch. The, the language here is a little obscure. They're coming to baptism, but not necessarily to be baptized. We can't necessarily infer that. Um, Again, these these, especially the Pharisees, as was pointed out in previous weeks, I think by Margot, you know, probably very good-intentioned uh, people who were very zealous for the law, but took it too far. Thought they were doing things that were really good. Sadducees, on the other hand, not so much. The Sadducees were like the uh, the aristocrats of the Jewish society, and usually it was just the priests, the high priest, and some of the wealthy people who were Sadducees. They only believed in the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah didn't believe in the resurrection or angels or spirits. And they often were the ones who were kind of colluding with Rome and getting these deals for themselves so they could retain their wealth and their position and allow Rome to come and occupy. So just like we have kind of the betrayal of the tax collectors, the Sadducees had some of that going on, but it was more hush-hush behind closed doors. So they're not a very favorably looking group. They're very uh, educated because of their wealth. uh, And so they have these positions of power, and they have for a long time um, because they're kind of inherited. But um, they're not like zealous for the law and very scrupulous about the law like the Pharisees are to, you know, to almost to a detriment. You know, that's why they're criticized. So you have these two people focusing on two different things, kind of one uh, condensing the law and then caring more for their own uh, livelihood. And then one expanding the law and not being uh, concerned enough about the heart of it. And neither of them are bearing fruit neither of them are authentically repenting. They're taking the law and they're doing two different things with it, neither of which were supposed to be done. And that is why John the Baptist, based on that experience of them and also based on probably how they're behaving, whether they're repenting authentically or at all, or if they're repenting half-heartedly saying, oh, we have Abraham as our father, so just baptize us because we're great. You know, he, he lets them have it. He says like, if you want this, like, you, have to, you have to repent. You have to repent. And that, by the way, when you go to confession, the first step of confession in the catechism uh, does not begin here. The first step of confession is repentance. You have to actually acknowledge your sin and make a wholehearted desire to turn 180 degrees away from them. So when you go to confession, when you make the act of contrition, whether you know it or not, it's usually written there. You may know a different version. But it goes something like, oh, my God, I'm truly sorry for hurting you with my sins. And it continues, if you're not truly sorry for your sins, and even if you have an intention to commit them again, if you're not actually turning away from them or committing to do your very best to turn away from them going forward, that confession is considered invalid because you have not done the first step of actually repenting. So it's repentance, then uh, it's actually considered contrition, then confession, absolution, and the penance. Um, there's a different word for penance that's used because that can be something that's done over time, but making up for the temporal punishment of sin. But that's the first step. And oftentimes we skip it. We don't think about it enough. We think more about what am I going to say in confession just so I can get it over with and get the grace, you know? And the, the sacrament's effective, don't get me wrong, but it's based on our intention. It's based on our proper entrance into it. You know, just like if I don't properly prepare for marriage and I am not... Saying, if I'm intending not to commit to my wife with vows that are free, total, faithful, and fruitful, and that can be proven later, then the marriage will be considered annulled, meaning it did not exist in the first place. The same thing can be true with a confession without repentance. It is not valid. So we have to make sure we are, when we go to confession, when we are in our prayer, when we are examining our lives in our day, that we are authentically repenting first and not just treating confession like a grace factory to get us back to square one. Other thoughts? Other things stand out? Michael? So
1: Jesus says repent of the kingdom of heaven. I said, how can John say that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? so Jesus is the kingdom. His spirit is what that means, right?
0: Yeah, so, um, well, that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word for kingdom, basilia, I think in Greek, it, it can also be translated as the reign of God is at hand. Or the, you know, the the... Kind of like you would say, like the Roman citizens would say, Caesar is Lord. Any Roman citizen could say that because it was a public declaration of the fact that he was the ruler. So John the Baptist here in the Jewish context of the kingdom is acting like a citizen of the kingdom, proclaiming that Jesus is Lord and his reign is at hand. Almost like a steward of the king coming to announce that the king is about to arrive, coming into a town would proclaim that, you know, King so-and-so is at hand and is about to arrive. That's what John the Baptist is doing here.
1: Yeah. Yes, Miguel. You the word, it's, it's concup- concupiscence. concupiscence, yes. So I mean, it seems that we are. So that's our nature, correct? Correct. So and this is an open question. Why would be Why would God allow that? I mean, why? It, it seems like you are put in a position to already be behind the eight You know, I mean, just mm-hmm. battling uphill.
0: Yeah,
1: Uh, our creation is that way. It it was made that way. I mean, I know that you know we're supposed to not do that, but uh, Mm -hmm. if we are created that way, so why why the strike against us?
0: So the distinction is, we were not created that way. Uh We made ourselves that way by turning away from God with our free will, and because of that, we now have original sin and concupiscence as a result. In the beginning, the way we were created was with what's called innocence, immortality, and infused knowledge. The three, they're called the preternatural gifts. That we had a higher sense of knowledge, that we would not die because sin wasn't sin and death did not exist. And we had innocence, meaning we didn't have a tendency or a desire for sin. That's why the serpent has to intervene, right? It doesn't come from Adam and Eve naturally. It's not something they don't have the tendency to sin. They have to be convinced by an outside party. But now, because sin has entered the world, we don't need to be convinced. We can, we can be tempted to do it all on our own. Not to say that the devil and demons are not at play trying to convince us and tempt us, but we do a pretty good job of that ourselves. So the distinction is we were not created to be that way, but we were given the free choice because in order to love, respond to God's love, it needs to be a free choice. Just like a marriage, you need to have a free choice, which means you are also free to choose the opposite. So because of free will, we have the option that sin would enter the world, and it did, and because of that, Sin has now, from the beginning of that moment, the beginning of God infusing us with the soul and our, our earthly parents of Adam and Eve, um, from that moment, the fall, is now. we're now living in a world that is corrupted by sin. Yes, sir? And
1: He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. Mm-hmm.
0: Explain the fire part. So fire um, has two uses in Scripture. One is uh, of judgment and punishment, and one is of purification. Um, that is why at, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes as tongues of fire resting on their heads you know, to signify the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, all these things, there are many symbols of the Holy Spirit in, uh, that are listed in the Catechism. There's like eight or nine of them. And all of them, uh, as far as I can remember, are things that cannot be, uh, cannot easily be contained, especially in large quantities. Think about water. You can put water in a glass. But even you tip a glass of water over and it's near a laptop, like all of a sudden your whole day's ruined, you know? But think about a flood. You know, even though we need water to live, when it becomes this kind of massive, uncontainable force, then it becomes very uh, intimidating or even destructive. The same thing is true with fire. We need fire to live, we need fire for warmth, for cooking, and all these different things. And yet, when it's out of control, it can be this very intimidating, powerful force. Um, Even the dove, you know, anyone ever tried to catch a bird? bird gets in the building anyone ever had that terrible task of trying to get the bird out of the building yeah it's awful you know it's like you would think it's just like a little bird what can it do and yet like you actually then you're there I just happened to me so many times when birds used to fly into our church because or my old church because it was all glass in the back so birds would think it was like windows you know or it was outside so they'd get in trying to fly through the church and then they get stuck And I was always the one who got tasked to try and get the bird out. And I think I maybe successfully did it like twice. And the other times I gave up, opened a window, and hoped they'd fly out or die. That was like, that was what I resolved to do. One time, right before confirmation mass, the bishop was about to come, and a crow flew in, hit the window, fell over, and died right in front of the bishop's chair. And I was like, this is not a good omen for confirmation mass. Yeah, so, but even that, even something a very small creature like can suddenly become very intimidating and overwhelming. Or if you've ever been in like a, a, a huge sea of birds, you know all of a sudden they get spooked and they decide to take off and you're right there. I think of the movie Home Alone 2 when he's lost in New York and he encounters the pigeon woman in Central Park and he's terrified of her simply because she has all these birds, which turns out to be lovely, but spoiler alert. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, you should see it. But um, you know, So all of these symbols for the Holy Spirit are things that cannot easily be contained. And so... Holy Spirit and fire, not only a fire of purification, but something that has this power. The word used in power, whenever it's associated with the Holy Spirit, is dunamis, or we get the word dynamite, this explosive supernatural power that can exist and live in us, that is uncontrollable, and yet we have it in us. And it can do these incredibly supernatural things if we allow kind of that, that uh that duct or, you know, I'm imagining a dam opening up, if we allow that kind of. Uh, valve or passage of the Spirit to flow through us. There's a great book um, about the Holy Spirit called Sober Intoxication of the Spirit. Uh, It's by Reniero Cantalamesa, who's the papal preacher. He's the guy who preaches to the popes, so he's got to be good. Um, And it's the best Catholic book that I've ever read on the Holy Spirit. It talks a lot about this in it, you know, the power of the Holy Spirit, Um, kind of that intoxicating uh, nature of the Holy Spirit. We're all drawn to fire, you know? I think someone was sharing a story yesterday, or I heard some. maybe it was at Mass, Deacon Ken was saying, like, all these kids, yeah, in in his homily, it was like, you know, you get all these rambunctious kids, and then suddenly you light an Advent candle, and they're all just mesmerized. It's like this really great way to hypnotize somebody, you know? It's like when I bought a lava lamp for the first time. I stared at it, and then I looked at the clock, and two hours had passed. And I had to get rid of it that day because like this is going to suck my life away, you know. So it's like these the light, you know, the fire, whatever it is, it, it lures us in, you know. It's like a human bug zapper. Anyway, who else? Is it? Michael. Sober intoxication of the spirit. Yeah, best Catholic book on the Holy Spirit. If you want the best book I know on the Holy Spirit, it's not a Catholic book, but it's by Francis Chan, who is not Catholic yet. I think he's getting closer. He's a really great uh, pastor. And it is called Neglected God. No, Rever- no, no, no. Forgotten God. It's called Forgotten God, Reversing the Neglect of the Holy Spirit. Forgotten God, Reversing the Neglect of the Holy Spirit by Francis Chan. Those two books will change your whole image and life of the Holy Spirit. They're great. Yes?
1: It's said much about John the Baptist, right? I mean,
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot more. Um, I think history and legends about him in the Eastern Church. In fact, in the, you know how we have different feasts and solemnities in the Catholic Church and the Eastern rites of the Church. There are like four different feasts of the finding of the head of John the Baptist. Like they love John the Baptist in the East. You know, John the Baptist was beheaded. There were multiple times throughout history where someone would fi- have this mystical encounter with finding the head of John the Baptist, and it became a feast in the church. So there's like four or five feasts of finding the head of John the Baptist. And then you have his nativity, um, his death. There's like uh, probably seven or eight feasts of John the Baptist in the Eastern Church. So he's, there's a lot more history about him in those rites of Catholicism. Oh, during this time? Yeah.
1: I mean, because uh, uh, the entire Jerusalem, all Judea, and all. The Around
0: the yes. Well, you know, I think it was is because there had not been a prophet for 300 years. Malachi is the last prophet for uh, th- over 300 years, about 350 years. And the prophets were the ones who were pronouncing the message of God and his coming. And so there was almost this kind of um, starvation for prophecy and then you see this obscure guy from the Essenes come out of the Essene community, preaching on his own in the desert, wearing the mantle of the greatest prophet in Jewish history, Elijah, behaving and acting a whole lot like him, suddenly saying things that sound very prophetic, that would have sparked a whole lot of hope and inspiration for a, a people who had been starving for a prophet for hundreds of years. That's why I think they really flocked to him. You know, I think if it was just him and his obscure dress and personality, that would not have been enough. It probably would have kept people away. I think it was the allure of the fact that like, oh, wait, like maybe God is doing something again. Maybe God didn't forget about us. Maybe now is the time that God is going to come and overthrow Rome and we're going to become a great nation again. And maybe this is the beginning of it. This person who's like Elijah. I think that's what drew them. Yeah. Yes. Excuse
1: me, uh, Matt. Forgotten God God re- reflecting what was the rest of it?
0: Forgotten God, Reversing the Neglect of the Holy Spirit. Okay. And it's a very, that one's a very easy book to read. Very simply written. Um, very, very good. So Forgotten God, Reversing the Neglect of the Holy Spirit by Francis Chan. Okay. Okay. I know they're both long titles.
1: <laughs> yeah, good luck spelling
0: Reniero Conte la Mesa. You'll just have to look up that other book and hopefully you'll find his name. Yeah. Yes, they're both on Amazon. They're not. They're not expensive. Great books. Yes.
1: Three hundred years. Yeah. Yeah. Three
0: hundred. Three hundred fifty years, probably since Malachi. I
1: wonder how God could expect the people still be true.
0: Well, they had the law.
1: Happened you know when they left Egypt. Yeah. Had the the golden calf and all that stuff in a short amount of time. Yeah.
0: I mean, the thought is they had the law, they had the law, they had the covenant promises of God that should have been enough. The only reason the prophets came was to tell them to go back to the law, to make straight the path back to the law and stop going this weird way over here to idolatry or to earthly pursuits like they had been doing, you know, so a prophet is only necessary when we stray and doesn't mean they weren't straying during that time, but I think it was, uh, kind of goes back to what I've said before. I think it's a quote from St. Augustine, that sometimes God withholds what he wants to give us because in the waiting, our heart swells larger until it's big enough to actually receive what he has in store. It's the same thing I think you could say for the whole Jewish people. They were so used to this experience of prophecy and God being close to them, they needed to have another experience of feeling like, where is God? In order for that starvation, that hunger for him to increase again, for them to be ready for the message of Jesus, which was very countercultural, very upside down, very unexpected. That I think is about our time. So, last thing
1: it from was Lynn. I say, yes. That I read in the paper that uh, the Chosen is going to be on Netflix. Yes,
0: and it's on Hulu. I think it's on Hulu and Peacock. Oh,
1: Peacock too. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, I keep seeing ads for it on Hulu and Peacock all the time. So, yes. Yeah. So, if you've not seen The Chosen yet. God is making a way for you to see it, <laughs> many ways, on all, all streaming services. Yeah, first and second seasons are already out. Season three is out right now. The first two episodes are in theaters. Um, and it is it is great, really, really great. Um, and John the Baptist is awesome in it, so good. One of my favorite scenes in season two is John the Baptist, when Jesus, like the, the guy with the demon comes into the camp, and Jesus is like, get out of him. And everyone's just like silent. And then John the Baptist in the back in his camel hair, and he's like, "Yeah!" <laughs> Just like <laughs> so pumped, you know. It's so great. So yeah, the guy who plays him is awesome. Yes.
1: I agree reading that we destructed in year sixty nine the temple. Yes. Okay. The, there is no more. Um, uh, there is no more knowledge of uh, uh, the high priests. And in place of them, here comes the rabbis. Mm -hmm. And from that moment on, they're only rabbis. Am I correct?
0: I think they may have traced lineages of some priestly classes just for posterity's sake to see when hopefully the temple would be rebuilt. I don't think they would ever have assumed it wouldn't be rebuilt. I think that was always the hope. Um, But I don't know today if anyone can legitimately say, like, I am the rightful High priest. They, you know, I wouldn't be surprised because the Hebrew practice of toledot of keeping genealogies is a very sacred thing that they take very seriously. So I wouldn't be surprised if they could still trace their their Aaronic or Levitical priestly lineage even to the high priest. But I don't know how publicly available that information is. So yeah. But you're right. It shifted to synagogues and local rabbis teaching because that's all they had. They didn't have sacrifices. That whole system was gone.
1: I have yeah. I just checked and uh, apparently, new this week, The Chosen is now on Netflix.
0: Yes, yeah, all over. So go watch it. Go watch it. Um, so, as we close, I just want to return back to that make straight the path. That's really just what the Holy Spirit was speaking to me. And I, I really imagine yourself in your spiritual journey as you are on a literal path. Is that path working for you? Is it overgrown? Are there obstacles in the way? Is it bearing fruit? Do you need to forge a new direction to a new destination or an easier way or a more fruitful way to get to the same destination? Really be praying into that imagery this week. Um, I'm imagining myself lost in the woods of Georgia. Maybe you're out in the desert, wherever it is. Um, But I think that's really what the Lord desires for us in this Advent season. So let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this fruitful passage. So much more uh, to this that we didn't even get to talk about. And so we pray, Lord, we would continue to read and reflect upon it and allow it to speak to us in new ways this week, and especially when we hear it proclaimed again this weekend. Thank you for the gift of this Advent season. Help us to continue to prepare the way for you into our lives each day. Bless us each in the ways we most need it, our families, those we pray for, and all of the people in our own lives, including ourselves who need healing mentally, emotionally, physically, or spiritually, that you, in your name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, would pronounce that over our lives and those we pray for, and that you would rebuke any presence of evil, Satan, his demons, any attachment to evil, bind, renounce, and rebuke it all, so that your Holy Spirit may live and dwell in us each and every day. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for being